I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Uh, we are recording this from the winter wonderland that is currently Edmonton, Alberta. Yes, lucky us. We just got our big first snowfall and we're trying to get all warm and toasty in the recording room here. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure my computer's gonna warm it up anytime soon, so... But it's a pretty long shot from, like, absolutely boiling to death in here just a few short months ago. We can think about the lovely weather of Florida today while we try to stay warm. Ah, uh, yes. The hot and sunny highways and biker bars of Florida. You know what that means, friends. We have officially made it to the final episode of our Eileen Wernos series. And we are both very aware of how bleak last week's episode was. Unfortunately, when it comes to the story of Eileen, things will continue to get worse from here on out as the seven murders she committed are finally all connected to her. We're going to be talking about how that all happened and how the woman she loved turned against her and helped the police with their investigation. And you can't talk about Eileen without talking about her time on death row. We also have a lot to say about the 44-year-old woman who adopted Eileen at the age of 35 after she claims God told her to do it. So just in case you haven't put it all together yet, today is going to be a wild ride. There is no doubt that Eileen has left her mark on the true crime world. In today's episode, we are really going to see why. Because, as you know by now, the amount of letters and interviews that we have from her around this time gives us something that no other person we have covered before has. That's right. With Eileen, we have an incredibly unique insight into the mind of someone on death row. Once again, we're going to be referencing many of the documentaries that are out there, as well as the Dear Dawn letters. The letters have been a huge source of information in regards to her state of mind. While they're not always factual, we do get a glimpse into the things that she was thinking about. On top of all that, we want to get back to something we mentioned in an earlier episode in the series. We know that Eileen was taken advantage of by many people throughout her childhood and her adult life. We also briefly talked about how she was taken advantage of in a lot of ways while on death row too. Interviews, books, movies, etc. It didn't take long before people realized how much money could be made from her story. Many of these people earned her trust to do so. Eileen herself thought that she could even make some money from her story. That is, until she found out that the law would not allow her to. So if you find Eileen interesting and you want to dive deeper into all of this, you're completely in luck. There's so much information out there about her. So many interviews from her, people who knew her, and even people who just knew about her. Everyone, it seems, has something to say about Eileen. I mean, can you blame them? Like, this story really pulls you back and forth morally. We saw that so much in the first two episodes. We really did. In part one, we spoke about her horrific childhood and upbringing. Last week, we talked about the murders, where we kind of touched on the fact that she would later bounce back and forth about why she killed the men. We're going to be getting into all of that today and so much more. Buckle in. We're going to pick right back up from where we left off last week. The body of a 62-year-old trucker named Walter Antonio was found on November 19, 1990. By this point, investigators have pieced together the fact that these murders were likely connected. We talked about this before, but because the murders happened in different counties, it took quite a while before they were actually linked. Not only that, a lot of the time the murder, the vehicle, and the body would be in two or three different counties, which only added to how complicated all of this was. Luckily, Captain Steve Benegar developed a theory that proved to be true. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. His theory was that hitchhiking was no longer common in the late 80s and early 90s. At this point, we had seen numerous deaths on the highway, and many of them were committed by drivers and hitchhikers alike. It really was an incredibly dangerous time. It was a lot more normalized back then, but by this point in the 90s, it just wasn't something that people really did. He also theorized that if these men were picking someone up, that it would be a person who appeared non-threatening, most likely a woman. This was pieced together with the witness accounts of two women crashing Peter Seam's car into a tree and running away, and the police sketches were brought back up. Captain Benegar shared these sketches in a news article in late November and asked for the public to call police if they had seen them or thought they looked familiar. Luckily, the two women stood out to a lot of different people, and soon enough, tips began to pour in. By mid-December of 1990, multiple reports of two women were made, and it appeared that they matched the sketches. We're going to share them on the socials as well as the YouTube video for this episode. When you compare the sketches to the two women, you can definitely see a resemblance. A man from Homosassa Springs called to say that two women matching the description had rented a trailer from him. He told the police that their names were Tyria Moore and Lee. A woman who managed an Ocala motel also called to say that she knew the woman and that they had worked for her. 
She said that their names were Tyria Moore and Susan Blahovic. And you'll notice pretty quickly that Eileen clearly did not use her real name the majority of the time. Lee was a known nickname of hers, but she also used a number of aliases. Tyra did not. Which makes sense. Eileen had a criminal record at this point, and Tyria didn't. Eileen was probably quote-unquote street smart enough to know that using her actual name wasn't a good idea. Multiple other people called about two women who were renting an RV that matched the sketches. Many of them reported that the two were in a relationship and that the blonde was the dominant one. By this point, police in Daytona had been able to track Eileen and Tyria to the Fairview Motel in Harbor Oaks. Eileen was using the name Cami Marsh Green. At this point, they had the names Taria Moore, Lee Blahovic, Susan Blahovic, and Cami Marsh Green. They ran these names through their database, but nothing came up for Tyria. When they looked at the other names, things began to look a little strange. Susan Blahovic had a trespassing arrest, but there was nothing under Cami Marsh Green. So normally when you have a criminal record, they'll list known aliases with it. So the fact that something came up for one and not the other indicated that she was indeed using a fake identity. They continued to look into the names and saw that Cami Marsh Green had sold numerous items at pawn shops. These pawn shops had a little spot on the back of the receipt where they would take the thumbprint of the seller for identification purposes. They quickly saw that she had pawned items belonging to Richard Mallory in Daytona. Not only that, she also pawned a set of tools that belonged to David Spears at a pawn shop in Ormond Beach. At first, the thumbprint turned up nothing, but when they expanded it to Volusia County, they found exactly what they were looking for. Someone named Lori Grody? Well, it's another fake name, but this one was attached to a weapons charge and an outstanding warrant. The print was cross-referenced with a bloody handprint that was left in Peter Seam's Sunbird, and it was a match. All of this information was sent to the National Crime Information Center, where the names were finally tied to Eileen Wernos. Police now knew exactly who they were looking for, and it was now up to them to find her. Can I just say, all of her aliases are very different from one another. They're that like, is actually very good. Do you know good what I mean? She like, was good at coming up with names. Totally. I wonder if she found like inspiration, like people she'd already met. Because like Lori is not like I guess it's close to Lee, but then it's not really close to Eileen. And then you have Grody and Blahovic. My, I don't want to give Eileen too much credit. Sorry, Eileen. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, she was so good at coming up with names, but then I'm also just like, I feel like she probably stole some IDs from was, ladies that looked like, like her, and she was like, I'm Susan now. Yeah, or maybe she just flipped open the phone book and was like, that one, yeah. that's who I am now, or, that's a name. or like jam two names together or whatever. I, I wonder. The investigation really began to kick off on January 5th, 1991. The plan was to send pairs of undercover officers all over town in areas that she was known to frequent. Also, January 5th was the day we moved to Canada. Oh, cute. Fun fact. Two of those officers were Mike Joyner and Dick Martin. They were going undercover as Buckethead and Drums, the two drug dealers who were visiting from Georgia. Buckethead and Drums. It's almost like they were eating chicken while they were trying to figure out their names <laughs> and they ran out of time, so they just went with, like, the first two words they could come up with. I love a good nickname. And here's what's super funny, though. A lot of the info out there just calls him Bucket. Uh, I watched an interview with him and he talks about how, like, I went by the name of Buckethead. It's kind of sad that we didn't get to hear the story of Drums. No, there's really not much out there about him that we could find. Where are you, Drums? Where are you? So, Buckethead and Drums eventually found themselves at the Port Orange pub where they saw Eileen. The investigators really didn't want to take any risks with her that would jeopardize things, so the original plan was to ease into it by chatting with her and attempting to earn her trust before arresting her. But before they could even approach her, they saw another group of police run into the bar to arrest her. Apparently, they had sent out for so many different officers that police from six different counties were working together, which caused a bit of a mix-up. Luckily, Joyner called their post and cancelled the arrest just in time. The other group of cops actually took her outside before they got the call to not arrest her. Eventually, she made her way back in and continued her night. Buckethead and Drums began to chat her up soon after and bought her a few drinks, which she accepted. The two officers offered her a ride, but she did not take it. Instead, she began to walk towards the direction of another bar. She actually had police trailing her with their lights off, but they decided to cancel this too and allowed her to reach her final destination, a biker hangout appropriately named The Last Resort Bar. And now here is a question for you, Charlotte, before we go any further, because I was curious about this. 
do you think she knew that something was up? Like, at this point, she's lived her life on the streets. She's very used to the police. We know she doesn't like cops. But do you think she thought anything about being questioned originally at the bar? Or do you think it was kind of just like something she was used to? I, I think she might have had an inkling. I feel like when you're, you know, on and off the streets your entire life, she's already been arrested multiple times at this point. You'd think she developed, you know, some kind of spidey sense. But, like you said, not to give Eileen too much credit, I don't think she was the sharpest tool in the shed. And I feel like in her mind, she might have been like, well, no one's caught me yet. Like, why would today be any different? I think you have a really, really good point there. Because she made it that far and she was confident enough to keep killing. So at this point, she's probably like feeling like, you know, I'm pretty good at this. Plus, they'd already brought her outside the bar. Like, the police had already brought her out. And she's probably like, well, they're not going to arrest me twice in one night. That's like, a good point. She's you know, probably like, all right, I dodged a bullet tonight. I'm free. Totally, totally. She ended up at the Last Resort Bar, which is now known as being the last place that Eileen Warrenos drank before being arrested. I was curious, so I looked it up, and they have pretty good Google reviews, surprisingly enough. Apparently they have good beer and fish. <laughs> <laughs> I would eat there. Uh, they also have a huge airbrushed photo of her displayed on the wall with the names of her victims as well as her last words which in my opinion is pretty weird and kind of tacky. Um, it seems like hella bad juju, if you yeah. ask me. It's interesting marketing, I guess. Uh, obviously, they seem to make it work. People do come to visit them from all around the world, so I guess they've just kind of like leaned into this fact about them. I mean, I guess it's neat. If I was in the area, I, like, I'd probably go out of my way to see it, but like at the end of the day, spots like that don't really interest me. No. If I was traveling, I would much rather go like look for like the Jersey Devil or find like a haunted location or something like that. Yeah. Not the bar that Eileen drank at. No, I completely agree. So Buckethead and Drums spend the rest of the evening drinking with Eileen until around midnight. She stuck around and apparently she slept at the bar that night. The next day, the last resort was having a huge barbecue. The two men found her again and offered their motel room for her to get cleaned up before the big party started. At this point, they had spent quite a bit of time with her and she was becoming more comfortable with them. This time, she went with them. As soon as she walked out, she was arrested by Larry Horzeppa of the Marion County Sheriff's Office. He told her that the arrest was for Lori Grody. He did not tell her that he knew who she really was. Again, they didn't want to risk jeopardizing the investigation at all. They were looking for two women, not just one, and they didn't want to fully proceed until they found Tyria Moore and had an actual confession from one of the two. And speaking of Tyria, she was long gone at this point. At some point, she had had enough, and she realized that this wasn't a relationship worth continuing, so she left to stay with her sister in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Investigators actually flew out to talk to her about the murders, at this time, they didn't actually have anything to charge her with. So, rather than arrest her, they decided to use her to get to Eileen. And boy, did it work. Did it ever. You might remember us talking about this last week briefly, but we mentioned that Taria would betray Eileen in a huge way. This is where we start to see it happen. We're going to see this progress really up until the day Eileen dies. Their first big question for her was why she hadn't turned her in if she was aware that she was out there killing men. Pretty valid question. Absolutely. She simply told them that she had some suspicions that Eileen had killed people, but that she didn't really want to know the full details, and so she had never asked. She also claimed that she was afraid that Eileen would hurt her if she told on her. And this, despite how much Eileen claims to love her, I completely buy it. Like, Ooh, yeah. Eileen seems like, A, the kind of person you don't want to piss off, but B, she very much seems like a snitches get stitches kind of gal, and I would not want to go against her. So I get that. Absolutely. And I think based on her loyalty to Tyria, if Tyria had betrayed that, I think she, that would have, like, snapped her. 100%. And with that, they had Tyria. All they needed was the confession. Again, at this point, they didn't really feel the need to go after Tyria for anything. She was mostly there as a pawn to get to Eileen. And they really reminded her of that. They also told her on multiple occasions that there were very real legal consequences when it came to not telling them the truth about things and that her best bet was to help them out. Because honestly, they could have had her with conspiracy, they could have had her with, like, you know, aiding and abetting a wanted criminal. The, the big thing that they kept pushing with her was, like, you will go to jail for perjury if you do not tell us everything. Uh, that, that so makes sense. So you better yeah, talk. Absolutely. 
because Eileen was incarcerated at this point for the Lori Grody charges, their plan was to have Tyria call her and have her get a confession that way. They wanted her to say that she was calling because the police were questioning her and her family and to make it seem like she was in danger of being arrested for Eileen's crimes. Which, not exactly a lie. No. Say what you will about Eileen, but when it came to Tyria, she was fiercely loyal. She assured her that she wasn't there for a murder charge and that it had to do with the Grody warrant. At this point, Eileen knew about the police sketches, but she didn't seem too concerned yet. Tyria kept calling her over the course of a few days, pushing the story about police harassing her family. It didn't take long until Eileen started to suspect that something was suspicious about the calls that Tyria was making to her. Over the course of more phone calls, she became more willing to talk openly about what had happened. And quick note, it's kind of interesting because throughout the phone calls, very quickly she starts saying like, is someone else there with you? Who else are you talking to? The phone line is tapped, da 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 And then she just starts talking anyway. Weird. She, she told Tyria that she wouldn't let her go to jail and she encouraged her to tell the police what she knew. And on January 16th, she made her first confession. Like we've mentioned before, Eileen would change what she said numerous times throughout the entire investigation. Sometimes little details would be different. Other times it would be a completely different story. During her first confession, she told Larry Herzepa and Bruce Munster that the killings were done in self-defense. She said that each man had either sexually assaulted her or was about to, so she killed them. At this point, she did not appear to express any remorse about what she had done. She was adamant about the fact that Tyria was not involved and appeared to be mostly worried about her well-being. The problem with her confession was just the sheer amount of talking she was doing. If you've ever seen her speak, you know what we mean, but she has a very frantic way of speech and she just like says a lot really fast. She would go back and forth a lot with the details and change the story when it didn't suit her in the moment. She continued to claim that the men were just among the many who had sexually assaulted her over the years and that she had finally had enough. At one point, a public defender who was tired of hearing her stories looked at her and said, Do you realize these guys are cops? To which she replied, I know, and they wanted to hang me. And that's cool, because maybe, man, I deserve it. I just want to get this over with. At this point, there was enough evidence against her, and it was finally time for Eileen to go to trial. Before we get into the trial, we want to get into a lady named Arlene Prowl. She read about Eileen's arrest and said that she felt completely prompted by God to reach out to her. She wrote to her and she told her that Jesus told her to do it and the two began to correspond. Arlene said it made no difference to her whether Eileen was guilty or not and that she still deserved love. Arlene, who was 44 at the time, and her husband legally adopted Eileen. And there's a documentary called Eileen Wernos, The Selling of a Serial Killer. And it was actually the very first Eileen documentary I ever saw. Uh, it talks about all of the movie deals and whatnot that everyone was making. And Arlene claims to have done all of this because Jesus told her to or whatever. But in the documentary, the guy wants to interview her and she tells him it's going to cost $25,000 for an interview to quote unquote help Eileen. Oh my God. He talks her down to $10,000, but she makes some serious money just for showing off some letters and talking about how she adopted a grown serial killer. Like, it's insane. At the end of the documentary, Eileen admits that she hasn't received much money from Arlene and that she's actually pretty pissed about it. Yeah, I don't blame her, honestly. Yeah, like, we're, we're not going to get into too much of this right now. We're going to talk about it later. But near the end of her life, she was pretty upset with her. Mind you, Arlene did pay for another lawyer for her, but he wasn't exactly the most, most like, ethical guy no, either. No, absolutely not. Yeah, we're going to talk about him later, too. So, as we know at this point, Florida is a death penalty state. Under the Florida Penal Code, when you are convicted of a murder under specific circumstances, you are looking at a possible death sentence. Some of those circumstances include multiple murders, obviously, Eileen checks that box, murder for hire, murder of a police officer or a firefighter, and a few other things. When it comes to Eileen, they're definitely looking at the death penalty. The trial for the murder of Richard Mallory began on January 13th, 1992 in Volusia County, Florida. A case like this, even now, would garner a ton of attention from the media, 
but the idea of a hitchhiking woman who was killing men fascinated people. A lot of people knew nothing about the men and only very sensationalized things about Eileen. Some of the news outlets made her out to be a monster, while others called her, and I quote, a badass lesbian prostitute who killed Johns for money. Can you imagine a case like this happening today with the internet? Like, I wonder how differently her trial would have gone. I I would imagine quite differently. Especially because, once again, we're talking about a female being Mm -hmm. executed. Like, remember Carla Faye Tucker? like it just gets blown way out of proportion the amount of media influence made it difficult to find members of the jury who were not biased after some time they were able to select 12 jurors and two backups that were proven to know essentially nothing when it came to the case and i guess that's one positive thing about there not being internet because in 1992 this was all over the newspapers and tv but i'm sure people could still somewhat avoid it Nowadays, if this was happening, you could not miss it. No, even if you weren't looking for it, like there's like CTV ads that come up on Facebook and stuff all the time. Oh, you'd know all about it. Absolutely. So Eileen was assigned a public defender named Trisha Jenkins. So she only had to go to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory at first. The prosecution didn't actually have a whole lot to go on when it came to Richard Mallory's murder. As we stated before, they didn't even share the fact that he was a convicted sex offender to the jury. Now listen, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a judge, so what do I know? But I think something like that would be worth mentioning, don't you? Absolutely. I I don't understand how it was never brought up. While she was not tried for the other murders, the evidence from them was used in the trial. We want to just take a quick sec to explain that. So the prosecution petitioned for something called a Williams Rule or similar fact evidence. This allows evidence from other victims to be used in this trial. So the intention of this is not to show further that she was killing, but it's to show that she had a specific pattern that she followed. The idea was, basically, is that if she acted this way six times after she murdered Richard Mallory, that there was no reason to believe that she wouldn't have killed him in the same manner too. This really messed things up for her defense. They had only prepared a case for one murder, and now they had to defend her against all of them in one single trial. Eileen's three-hour confession to the police was edited into a 16-minute tape and shown to the jury. However, the entire tape was leaked to the public. So in my opinion, that is shady as hell. It's a trial. It should be all relevant until it is decided by both parties and the judge that it is not. I agree. And it does, yeah, it doesn't seem fair to me at all. Maybe this is a silly question and uh, it could have changed based on like the country or the state. But don't the defense and the prosecution have to talk about what evidence they're bringing to trial before the trial? They do, but it can change really quickly. If the prosecution goes to the judge and says, hey, we have some brand new evidence, can we enter it? It's up to the judge's It's up to the judge. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it's, and truthfully, like we're going to talk about this a little bit later, so I don't want to get too far into it now. Her lawyers weren't exactly the world's best lawyers to begin with. So they could have seen like, oh, hey, they're sending like an edited version of the tape and they would have been like, okay. Their reasoning for it was that they only wanted to focus on the parts about Mallory, while the defense argued that it took the worst parts of it for the purpose of making her look just even more terrible. She also never mentioned in the initial confession that Richard Mallory had sexually assaulted her. This along with the fact that they left his prior sexual assault charges out of the case painted a bit of a different picture than whatever she later claimed. That being said, she was more focused with Tyria's well-being more than her own in that confession, so she believed that if she didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, that they could both possibly go to jail. The defense argued that her confession was obtained involuntarily. However, her defense lawyer told her not to make any long statements. Eileen was not in the right frame of mind due to her concern for Tyria at this point. She also had a difficult time understanding what was actually happening. Eileen Wernos didn't even know how the legal system actually worked at this point. She would actually say later that she thought the police officers who took her confession were lawyers. Which I have to add, like when you're looking at a potential death penalty case, if the person is at that level of understanding of the judicial system, that's probably a sign that we need to evaluate them more. Perhaps this is not the time or the place, but did they not like be like, hi, Eileen Wernos, like we're officers of the law here to take your confession. Like apparently she was read her rights. They read her her Miranda rights. The public defender was brought in and said, don't make any huge statements. Don't say much. And then she just went off. And she just started talking for three hours. (laughs) Okay, Eileen. 
The defense said that in her later confessions, she did admit that she killed Mallory in self-defense after he refused to pay for her services. Her attorney, of course, advised her against testifying, but she did not listen. And, I mean, it's pretty fair that they didn't want her up on the stand, because she goes off so easily, and she really doesn't make good impressions at all. No. She's, she's definitely one to make a bad impression, and that's definitely what happened. Yeah, she literally rubs everybody she knows the wrong way. And you can't do that with a jury. You can't. Before we get into that, we want to share one of her letters to Dawn where she talks about how she felt about the murders. What really gets me is that this actually happened. That people died. Because all my life, I asked God one of the biggest things I would say to him that I pray I am never involved in someone's death. And it just really blows my mind completely. Being here, having killed, not wanted that. It's just unreal. And a lot of this myself, I cannot understand. My fate. This is all so strange to me. Very strange, because I didn't want this to happen. I am sad about their death. Very sad. But I don't want anyone to know. Because then their stupid, ignorant asses will think I'm crying and all blue because I feel guilty. Wrong. That's not the case at all. Society is the one who are guilty. All the way. 200%. Okie dokie. I'm sorry if some is not legible. It's just that this hand has been working overtime and sex is out of the question now. And I'm going to read this next part as it's written. Ha 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 ha. You sounded like a text-to-speech. Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we wanted to leave that last part in because, again, it kind of shows you how much she would bounce back from talking about absolutely horrific things to... Well, whatever that was. Well, I mean, really, she goes from, like, the guilt she feels when it comes to killing men to masturbation. It's, like... Separated by the word okie-dokie. Okie-dokie. And it's spelled O-K-E-E-D-O capital K-E-E. The defense also attempted to use her childhood to explain why she did such terrible things, but... In an unexpected turn of events, her brother... And this is the brother that's technically her uncle. That's right, Barry Wernos. He showed up and testified in court saying that Eileen wasn't abused as a child. He essentially called her a liar and said that he didn't back up a single claim of hers. Which, like, that would have destroyed... Oh my god. Because they're going to take Barry's word over Eileen's word anyway at this point. Yeah. So... And then combine that with the fact that she's already made not the best impression. Yeah, and now she has a brother, a blood relative that grew up with her being like, she full of shit. This poor woman had no chance. Whether this was true or not, in court, she had no chance. Yeah. So Barry described in court, he described the family as having... A normal lifestyle. We were a pretty straight and narrow family. In the letters, Eileen speaks a lot about how much she hated Barry and Lori because they treated her and Keith differently. She mentions that she felt as if Barry tortured Keith when he was dying of cancer by not taking care of him. She thanks Dawn in the letters for bringing Keith a pillow because Barry wouldn't get him one. In the letters, she says... So he tortured him like that before he died. Same with me in the testifying department with Lori and Barry. I'm sure they thought on the lines of a perfect opportunity for revenge. As I said, they hated us so much in the family, they wish we were dead. Well, their wish finally came true, didn't it? I personally don't see any salvation in their bones either, so whatever will be, will be. The future looks bleak, you see. I'm sure it will be. He he. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. Whatever Jesus decides. I spent a while after reading that wondering which one of them was telling the truth until I realized I was looking at it in a manner that was way too black and white. I'm not saying that the things that she said didn't happen and I'm not saying that he was telling the truth either, but we do know that she was a wild child and she was incredibly difficult to get along with from a young age. I mean, plus this is an era where, you know, spankings are not out of the question. In fact, I would imagine they're pretty common oh, as absolutely. she was growing up, right? I, I'm sure this was like in a time where like spankings were considered a part of good parenting. Good parenting. Exactly. But like, I, I just, I think there is very likely a chance that Keith and Eileen were treated differently than Laurie and Barry because they were technically the grandchildren of 
True. I mean, usually when you think of, like, how your grandparents treat you as a grandchild, it's usually, like, a thousand times better than anything your parents would have ever had. But I think there's also that possibility that Barry was ashamed of his parents' abuse or negligence. Yeah. And he didn't want anyone to think that what Eileen was saying was true. But he did testify under oath, so who can really say? When his sister, Eileen's Aunt Lori, testified, she told the court the same thing as Barry. Their childhood had been just fine. And with that, it was then time for Tyria to take the stand. By this point, she had actually talked to various parties and sold her story. She wasn't the only one. Three of the detectives that were involved did the same. Eileen tried to make some money off of her story as well. She was approached by a filmmaker named Jackie Giraud, who presented a contract to Eileen and the lawyer that she had at the time and secured film rights to the story. Eileen was thrilled to take it, thinking that she would make some money. However, due to the Son of Sam law, she was not able to make any financial gains when it came to the murder she committed. When she found this out, she fired that lawyer, stating that he only wanted to make money from her, and said that she didn't understand the contract that she had signed. At this point, there was a ton of various movie and interview deals that were going around between everyone involved. Some of them actually got their own lawyers to negotiate their movie deals for them. The defense used this in court as well, saying that the movie deals could possibly influence witnesses to exaggerate what they were saying in order to make for a better story, and therefore earn them more money. Which kind of makes sense. But back to Tyria for now. When she testified, she stated that she knew about the different aliases as well as the fact that Eileen was robbing men. She said that Eileen never told her why she shot Mallory. She maintained that Eileen didn't tell her a lot about the murders because she told her she didn't want to know. They asked her if Eileen ever spoke about being assaulted while doing sex work, and she said that she did not. But when they asked her if she had any knowledge of her being assaulted at all, she said that it had happened before they had met. She also said that she knew Eileen had a gun that she used for protection while hitchhiking. Later in letters, Eileen would accuse Tyria of lying due to not having undergone a polygraph test, which polygraph tests are notoriously unreliable anyway. Eileen seems like the kind of lady, though, where she'd be like, I can oh, pass that polygraph. Like, probably, yeah. Like, to her, that was probably, like, the law was what the polygraph totally. test said. Totally, and you, you know, know what? what? I mean? To be fair, had she undergone a polygraph test, they would have made it seem that way anyway. <laughs> I firmly believe at this point she could have done literally anything and she would have been fucked. Oh, yeah, there was no way for this. She had no chance. No way for her to turn. On January 27, 1992, the jury deliberated in the capital murder trial. After a short 91 minutes of deliberation, they found her guilty on all counts. Eileen did not handle this well and began to shout in court. Now, we do say a lot of shocking things on here. Yeah. And, I mean, we both have kind of potty mouths. I was literally, like, born swearing, I'm pretty sure. Um, I think we can both agree with that, but some of the things that she says from here on out get pretty wild, so just kind of brace yourself for that. We're going to include a few direct quotes from the trial and some a bit later that we want to share with you that are moments where she gets mad and her eyes bug out. She, she gets kind of this dark look on her face and she just screams. You see her flip uh, in a lot of her interviews where one minute she's smiling and even laughing as she answers questions and then like the second someone says something she doesn't like the wild eyes just come out and she loses her fucking mind the wild seriously that is so accurate like when she gets mad and you guys you can see this in the interviews her eyes bug out and they get black it doesn't surprise me that she's someone who can get violent really quickly Upon hearing her verdict, she shouted, Sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. This really didn't help things, uh, along with everything else, because the jury hadn't actually began the sentencing phase yet, and she's leaving them with a pretty awful impression. Here's the funny thing you mentioned about, like, you, you see her flip out in the interviews. Mm -hmm. When you were watching the interviews, did you ever have moments where you were like, she sounds so nice? Yes. In in the final interview, like, the day before she's set to be executed, um, when the interview starts... It starts she, off so well. She starts off well. She stood there. The guards are behind her. The prison guards are behind her. And she's just talking. She's Very like, eloquent. Surprisingly, surprisingly eloquent. Surprisingly, like, yeah. calm mm -hmm. and collected. And then um, Nick, the interviewer, we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit, but he asks her some questions that she don't like. Mm -hmm. And it's like a switch has been flipped. It is. You can see it happen. Like, you can see it happen in her face. And it's... It, seeing that... 
That is the face of someone who killed seven well, men. Well, I was going to say, it makes you kind of imagine her getting picked up by some kindly Samaritan, mm-hmm. good Samaritan, that just wants to give her a ride, like uh, Mr. Seams did. Yep. And you could see him being very at ease with her because she's talking, she's laughing, she's joking. And she looked like, she didn't look like, she went out of her way to present herself as a very quote-unquote normal woman. Yeah. She wanted to look like just like a typical mom. So she was very, like... She would have been very, yeah, like, amicable. Exactly. And then, obviously, for whatever reason, whatever it was that pisses her off or whatever, boom. and then, boom, you're dead. Like That's it. Which makes me wonder, sorry to get off on a little bit of a tangent. No, please do. But when Tyria left her, when Tyria had decided that she had had enough and she went back to, um, was it Pittsburgh to stay Mm -hmm. with her sister? Oh, uh, Pennsylvania. Sorry, Pennsylvania. Pittston. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Um, I wonder that, I like, I wonder how Eileen didn't hurt Tyria. Because I feel like, again, she's broken that trust. This is the love of her life. And Tyria's like, I'm out of here, you crazy bitch. I, we don't know what happened. This is speculation. Yes, complete Personally, speculation. I feel like in a situation like that, Tyria probably, middle of the night, was like, I'm fucking leaving. That's, I gotta get out of here. Yeah, I gotta go to my sister's true. house. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. Yeah. It, it, yeah, again, you see her and it makes you wonder certain things about her for sure. Uh, the goal of the sentencing phase of the trial was to figure out if she was going to get that death penalty or if she was going to get life in prison. Right. The prosecution stated that she should be put to death on the grounds that any mental impairments that she had weren't that extreme. And that she committed all of the murders with the full understanding of what she was doing. Her defense once again used her childhood as well as her mental state to try and save her life. Three different psychologists stated that Eileen had borderline personality disorder, which resulted in an extreme emotional disturbance. Her defense attorney called her, and I quote, a damaged and primitive child and pleaded with the jury to spare her life. That didn't work, and on January 31st, 1992, she was sentenced to death by the electric chair for the murder of Richard Mallory. On May 4th, 1992, she shocked those around her by firing her defense team and hiring Steve Glazer, also known... Oh my god, and this is super cringe. He was known as Dr. Legal, according to his horrible commercials, and there's certain (laughs) interviews and documentaries where there's little clips of these, and it's... I Like I said, it's very cringy. This guy pisses me off. I'm oh not gonna lie to you. He has one he of those sleazy. faces. Yes. Oh my. He has one of the, like. He reminds me of a used car salesman. Yes. That's... And I can say that because I used to sell cars. <laughs> but he just there's something about him where like he could tell me the sky was blue and I wouldn't trust him with that. Absolutely not. He exudes sleaze so much. If you guys have like, look up Doctor Legal Eileen Warnos on YouTube. You'll see that just. Ugh. He's something else. Mm. So, hiring Dr. Legal would not prove to be a good move for Eileen. Right before firing her defense team, she made it seem like she was going to be pleading innocent. But as soon as Steve Glazer was hired, he told the courts that she would be pleading no contest to the other murders. And Arlene Prale encouraged this. All of this is on video. When she gives her statement, she says something that really stuck with me. She says, I am prepared to die if you say it is necessary. And after she says that, she stops, she takes a breath, and she kind of shakes her head, and then she keeps talking. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes, it's, but it's, and it's a very vast uh, flip, again, that flip of the switch, yes, compared yep. to when, when the lady comes out and reads the jury's yeah, um, sentencing. But it's very much like, to me, I got the vibe that it was very much like a she said it, and then it was like, <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I got that. Here. It is what it is. I, I guess, here. She likely believed that if she pled guilty that she would get some form of mercy. She did not. In June of 1992, Eileen received her fifth death sentence. At this point, she realized that Arlene was using her for money and her relationship with her had faltered. Eileen would even claim that Arlene was giving her ways to kill herself in prison and that she wanted her to die as soon as possible. Eight months later, Eileen was sentenced to death for a sixth time. Eileen would not face charges for the murder of Peter Seams due to the fact that his body was never found. She did, however, confess to his murder. When she was told that they were sentencing her to death for the murder of Troy Burris, Charles Humphreys, and David Spears, she replied, Thank you. I'll be up in heaven while you're all rotting in hell. 
And then she leans to Dr. Legal. And Charlotte, you get to read this one. I'm so sorry, She's Okay. Again, these are Eileen's words, not Charlotte's. Absolutely not. Uh, So she leans to Dr. Legal and says, I hope they get raped in the ass one of these days. And they do explain to her, like, right after she says this, that she has the right to an automatic appeal. uh, To which she looks at the judge and says, May your wife and kids get raped right in the ass. I I don't like saying that. that. I felt dirty typing that out. It's so weird. Like I said before, how she says, if I am prepared to, like, I'm prepared to die if you say it's necessary, is calm, almost seems to kind of, like, accept it that it's happening. And then not, what, 20 minutes later, she's like, you know, I hope that horrible things happen to you. Because I think when she was originally saying, you know, I'm prepared, this is okay, I think she thought... That they were going to be like, you know what, Eileen? We looked at the evidence. Probably. You're looking at life in prison, girl. We're not going to put you to death. I legitimately think she thought that she was going to get life. I think to some degree, a lot of people in her position, serial killers, murderers, whatever, I don't think until it's fully officially read out that it clicks what's happening. And especially with a death sentence. Yeah. Because I think there's still that little voice in the back of your mind that's like, couldn't be me. Couldn't be me. I'm going to get away with this. Yeah. I'm going to survive this. It's fine. Yeah. And I, and I think for her, we also have to keep in mind the fact that, like, she was not an educated and intelligent woman. Like, no. she barely understood what was going on. And I think that she thought, like, hey, if I confess, everything will be okay. Everything will be fine. And then when it wasn't, she flipped her shit. She continued to shout as the judge is speaking to her. She then flips him off and walks away until she's let out of court. Various appeals would be filed, but they were all denied. But there were numerous post-conviction proceedings from 1994 to 2002. There's a lot of them. We're not going to go through them all in detail. But she argued that she didn't receive fair representation and that her lawyers were incapable of defending her. Which, I mean, not untrue? Yeah, not untrue. They uh, they certainly could have done better. Dr. Legal could have done a better job. Absolutely. One of the main pieces of evidence that her team had when it came to this was the fact that the truth about Richard Mallory being a sex offender was withheld from the jury. Which is a fair point. We talked about that a lot last week. While it doesn't excuse what she did, it is completely most likely to both of us that the murder of Richard Mallory was actually in self-defense. I I definitely lean that way. It may not have changed her fate in the end, but it would have been really important information for everybody to know. Something else that's interesting is that a number of people who knew her as a kid stated after her trial that they would have testified that she was abused by her father if they had just been asked. Eileen has done a lot of bad things at this point. We're not attempting to minimize that, but we just want to point out how incredibly difficult something like this would have been to process. Many argued that she hadn't been mentally competent to stand trial to begin with, but her overall mental state continued to deteriorate. During this period of time, she mostly gave interviews, wrote letters, and continued to attempt to appeal her fate. This was during the peak of the talk show circuit. Eileen was interviewed by Geraldo Rivera. Her story was on Oprah. She was truly everywhere. Various motions were filed to cancel the execution date due to Eileen's mental state, but again, these were all denied too. In a 2001 petition to the Florida Supreme Court, she stated that she wanted to fire her legal counsel and cancel all appeals. She wrote, I killed those men, robbed them cold as ice, and I'd do it again. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I am so sick of hearing the she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. Eileen began to claim that prison staff were mistreating her. She said that she had found things such as dirt, spit, and urine in her food, as well as what she called pure hatred towards me. We've seen this with a few people that we've covered um, with the paranoia about food being tampered with and police messing with them and things like that. And when you hear it this many times, eventually you kind of start to wonder, like, is it true? I think with any job, any person, any industry, whether, you know, nurses, cops, anybody, Mm -hmm. you're always going to have a few bad eggs. And there was probably some guys that were, you know, guards in the prison that were like, you know what, Eileen, fuck you. She killed cops. True. (laughs) This is the thing to keep in mind. Very true. People who are like, oh, they wouldn't have done that to her. She was in jail 
for killing cops. Not all of them were cops, but for killing two but of two them. two were. And, and then seven men. If you're yeah. a male prison guard, you might take that kind of personally. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I, rule it out. Honestly, like, that when she says stuff like that, I'm kind of just like, you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if she was mistreated because... I could see why they wouldn't like her. But again... Uh, not that it's right. No, no, not that it's right, not. But it um, doesn't surprise me because statistically, if you kill a cop, you go to jail, you're going to have a bad time. Totally. And not only that is, I'm, I'm not sure what the case was in the particular prison that Eileen was in, but if your kitchen is run by other inmates, as they often mm-hmm. are, maybe some other inmates just didn't fucking like her all yep. that much and was like, you know what, Eileen, screw you. I don't like you either, right? So I, I don't think she's off the cuff to think that that could have no, been happening. No, I agree with you. Now back to her execution. Uh, the method of execution was changed at one point to lethal injection from the electric chair. Uh, there were notes made by various guards that stated that Eileen was overall in good spirits and that she was even looking forward to death. One of the notes stated, Wernos is very angry at the media and corrupt institutions and says that she can't wait until Wednesday at 9.30 so she can be with her god and punish all the evildoers for the way they treated her. Eileen gave a final interview before her execution. She called the interviewer, who was the same man that paid Arlene $10,000 for an interview, and told him that she had some final things to say. In the interview, she appears, like we said before, with a big smile on her face and says that she is prepared to die. And again, this interview is on YouTube if you want to watch it. We highly recommend that you do. It's very interesting. And like I say, it really captures that like flip of the switch with her personality. She says in the interview that she is prepared to die, but she wants people to know that police knew who she was long before she was caught and that they allowed her to keep killing. She claimed that she left prints everywhere and was messy, but they covered it up. She also said that they wanted to turn her into a serial killer, so they allowed her to keep on doing what she was doing. She then begins to talk about something interesting, and that is the treatment that she received at various institutions. She talked about how she believed that they were using sonic pressure on her in her cell to torture her. She also claimed that her mirrors and her TV were rigged. She mentions how every time she would eat when certain jailers were working, that she would get violently ill. She also believed that she was being watched, mentally tortured, and poisoned. There wasn't really any evidence of this, but like we said, she isn't the first serial killer to make these claims, which is pretty interesting. So is it paranoia, or it's is it something more? And it kind of, to me, brings up the question of, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, She could have just been, like, having bad days, off days. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sat in a jail cell with all your own thoughts. She clearly has some guilt to her because of the way she talks to Dawn in her letters. So, you know, did she wake up one day and was like, you know what, I'm canceling all my appeals because that was the kind of day she was having. The next day she could have woken up and been like, oh, Eileen, that was not a good idea. But, like, you're in jail. What are you going to do? And the thing to keep in mind, too, is, like, this isn't, like, a six-month process. No, this no, she was, was in jail for, or rather prison, for years. Years. So this is her trying to appeal these sentences and being told she's a liar and having people trying to talk to her and make money off her. She doesn't know who she can trust. Like, that's... When your mental health is already not well, Oh, that's it, not going to bring the best no, side of you out. Absolutely not. And there, you know... There's medications you can take to help with, like, BPD and, you know, mm-hmm. antidepressants and all this stuff. She was not being taken care of in that way. Honestly, I think at this point, it's... They, they could have given her all the help in the world, but it... I mean, if she's being executed. Yeah, so what are you going to do? Absolutely. Either way, she claimed that the prison wanted to make her look insane so that no one would believe her stories. She also gets very upset when the interviewer tries to talk to her about why she committed the crimes and mentions that she has changed her story, stating that believing her or not believing her would not change anything. She made claims about cops watching her before she even killed, saying, Did you know that they were surveilling me before I killed and that I knew it and that it was covered up? Did you know that there were helicopters dropping down from the sky, deputies, sheriff, decoys picking me up four or five months before my arrest? It was covered up. No one ever asked me these questions. Her reasoning for all of this was that by allowing her to kill, the cops had someone cleaning up the streets for them and getting rid of men who were doing bad things. She regards herself, and I quote, as a raped woman being executed. 
and she says that she was used for political and financial gain. She said that her refusal to talk about what really happened was out of retaliation for being used. She also blamed her execution on her lack of a fair trial and maintained that executing her was wrong. She says something about she won't give book and movie info and only investigation info in that last interview, and honestly, I don't blame her. I think at this point she's realized that for the most part everyone who was helping her was just using her in some way to make money and she was done with it. She finally realized that no one was coming to save her at this point and I think that that's why she was so angry. She walks out of the interview and the interviewer points out that just the day before she was ruled mentally competent to stand execution. If you watch the video yourselves, we'd love to know your thoughts on it. It's interesting to see because in the interview she goes from being completely calm and like big smile on her face and at peace to saying you're an inhumane bunch of fucking living bastards and bitches and you're gonna get your asses nuked in the end and pretty soon it's coming. And then she compared herself to Jesus on the cross. So that's kind of the level of Eileen we're looking at. And I, I do want to point out that she also said that um, I think a meteor was gonna hit us in 2019 and kill us all, but that hasn't yeah. happened. So. I'm, I wonder where she got that information. I wonder if it was something to do with Arlene or like, you know, because she did claim that Arlene was almost encouraging herself to commit suicide in jail and I wonder if Arlene was like well Eileen there's a big meteor coming so you may as well off yourself anyway honestly like it's a, who knows who the hell knows and and it's interesting because we have we said this so much we have all this info from her directly from her but you still have no fucking clue what was going no. on in her head. no absolutely not. like think about like how many hours of Eileen Wernos videos we have yeah. watched in the last three weeks and, and I still don't know. No get her. one's any closer to knowing no. what actually happened. Yeah. And I at this point I I think we likely never will. No. On October 9th, 2002, Eileen declined her last meal and instead asked for a cup of coffee. Opponents of the death penalty pointed out that the timing of the execution was very convenient for Jeb Bush, who was up for re-election, and he was the governor of Florida at the time. The two last-minute motions were made but he denied them. Eileen requested that the song Carnival by Natalie Merchant be played at her funeral. And I did, I, out of curiosity, I looked it up on Spotify. I hadn't actually heard of Natalie Merchant. I'm not sure if she's particularly big or not, but I gave the song Carnival a listen and I can for sure see why Eileen was drawn to it. Yeah. Natalie Merchant herself actually gave her blessing for this because she had heard about how often Eileen had listened to her album. Nick Bloomfield, who made the final documentary and did that last interview, said something about her state of mind that really stands out. He says, I think this anger developed inside her. She was working as a prostitute. I think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads. And I think this anger just spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. That was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can't really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement that you could say something that she didn't really agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it, and I think that's what had caused these things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredible humanity to her. And that's exactly what we said earlier, is that, like, the rides probably started really nice and calm. She's asking about their kids. She's probably chatting. telling, like, her life story to Yeah, them. just like a nice, nice lady. And then someone says something wrong or looks at her wrong, and then she just flips. Well, it's like with Charles Karskadon, the guy that was on, like, the rodeo circuit. All she noticed was that he had a firearm in his truck, and that was it. That's all it took. She was convinced that he was going to use it to hurt her, when, like, the likelihood is they were probably having a fairly calm conversation yeah of course, we don't know speculation we don't but know her final words were i'd just like to say i'm sailing with the rock and i'll be back like independence day with jesus june 6th like the movie big mothership and all i'll be back she was pronounced dead on october 9th 2002 at 9 47 a.m at the age of 46 and this fact kind of pissed me off yeah less than a year later on what would have been Eileen's birthday, Charlize Theron accepted an Oscar for playing her in yet another movie about her life. Which is something I kind of forgot, is that the movie came out while Eileen was still alive. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, it's making me feel some kind of way. Yeah. 
I don't like it. I yeah. I, there there's something about we just executed this woman who was more than likely horrifically abused her entire life that I mean, a lot of people are saying we shouldn't have executed. Yeah. So let's do this big gala and put this beautiful actress in an expensive dress where she just made a million dollars for playing a woman who essentially had nothing ever. It's gross. It, that, it that's does, the only yeah. way that I can put it, you guys. I don't have a more eloquent way to put this, but to me, that is gross. It's it's kind of the, the dichotomy of there's, like, yeah, Eileen's life where she was shit on her entire mm-hmm. life and then no hate particularly to Charlize Theron or anything it's a, movie. it's a movie she was an actress playing a part but yeah this distinct difference on the spectrum of a life if that makes any sense the like glitz and glamour of Hollywood Eileen probably never held a fucking ball gown in her life, no. let alone. No, well, think the, about the yeah. one point where she's like, "Yeah, I had a pair of ratty tennis shoes, three pairs of pants, and a couple of t-shirts." Yeah, yeah. And then here's someone else making million. I don't know. It's yucky, you guys. It's yucky. Let me know. I want to know what you guys think. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm curious. We don't like it. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Tyria made a deal to not be mentioned in movies and fictionalizations, and she isn't a character in Monster, and I forgot about this. Yes, so that was the one thing um, when we first started kind of like really dipping into the research. I was like, I thought they would have picked someone else a little more Tyria looking to play Tyria. Because let's look at Tyria and then look at Christina Ricci. Yeah, there's... Big difference, guys. Like both have eyes and a nose. Yeah, they're both women. That's where it ends. Yeah, they're basically Tyree was like, mm, I'll let you have all this information as long as you do not portray me in any manner that resembles yep. me. Yep, so Christina Ricci, she plays a character that is loosely based off of Tyree, a different name, different appearance, da-da-da. Yeah, so Tyria Moore is not a name that will likely live on. She now lives a quiet and private life. She has not done an interview in many, many years, and it doesn't appear that she has any intention to in the future. Eileen Wernos, however, is a name that has gone down in history. And that is the end of the tale of Eileen Wernos, the first female serial killer. So how do you feel after this one? Mm. Emotionally and morally, this one has me all over the place because those men, they didn't deserve to die, but Eileen also didn't deserve to ever have been in the position where she was allowed to drop out of school and engage in the behavior that she did at such a young age. Like, sure, not everyone who's a rebellious kid turns into a criminal or a killer or whatever, but when you combine it with everything else that she went through, it's really not a surprise. What she did isn't right by any means, and I can't stress that enough, but it's proof that when kids need help, people need to step in. Because one single person caring about her as a kid would have probably changed this entire story. In that way, I agree with Eileen, one of the few times you'll ever hear me say that, but I agree when she says that society failed her. Honestly, like, given her parents' situation, like, her teen mother and then her father that killed himself in jail because of what he had done, I almost think, like, we often say with serial killers, like, they were screwed from their birth. Mm -hmm. I think she was screwed before she was even born. Her entire life was a tragedy from day one to her death. And it's even more tragic because she took seven lives with her. However, her fucking awful experiences do not excuse her murders. I do think there is that high possibility of her acting in self-defense when it came to the death of Richard Mallory. But for me, the self-defense argument goes straight out the window when it comes to the deaths of her six other victims. I don't know if she deserved her death sentence, but I would say with fairly strong certainty that had they not caught her when they did, she would have just continued to hurt a lot more people. We know this is a really complicated one, and we're sure you guys have a lot of thoughts, just like we clearly do. (laughs) We would love to hear them, so reach out on the socials or email us and let us know. Yeah, or if you're in our YouTube premiere right now, hello. Hi. We've already been talking about it. Hi, YouTube. So we love your thoughts. Come hang out with us on YouTube on Saturdays, you guys. It's seriously yeah, so much fun. We've I, got like I enjoy it a lot. It's it's nice. We've got like our own little like grim curriculum crew and always looking for more people to chat with. And yeah. it's just it's a good time. Absolutely. And speaking of Saturday YouTube premiere, Ooh. if you are listening to us today, Saturday, November the fifth. Hi. Hello. Today is Extra Life Game Day. Which means uh, I 
I've probably already been gaming this morning and I've taken a brief break to hang out with you guys. Um, but we are raising money for Extra Life. We're raising money for our local children's hospital, The Stollery. We will be streaming on and off and gaming for the next 24, technically 25 hours because it's daylight savings. So we get to watch the clock jump hey. back at like two in the morning or whatever, but when it's for an excellent cause. Back in the day when I worked at the halfway house, oh, yeah. when I did overnights, you would oh. work you would work 2 a.m. and write your logs, and then you would have to work 2 a.m. again with a second, second set of 2 a.m. Oh. logs. And it was like the bane of my existence. I've never, Fuck I've daylight never... <laughs> savings time. But we're going to be streaming. Yeah. Um, we're going to be playing some various things uh, separately and together. Yeah. So, you guys um... really enjoyed us playing Phasma. So I think that's yes. gonna have to happen again because that oh, was a good time. Absolutely, and uh, maybe if you stop by our streams, you'll get to meet some of the other awesome stream daddies, yeah. peeps that are uh, also part of the team that's raising money. This I think year. there's some like Jackbox going on. Yeah, at some point. So like, if you guys are interested, and we do get into Jackbox, like I'm sure we'll have like audience members if yeah. you want to jump in and hang out with us there. But we'll keep you guys in the loop and. Uh, Thank you in advance for stopping by our streams and being wonderful, awesome human beings. And for donating, because this is a really good cause. So yeah, thanks. absolutely. Uh, links are down in the description, or you can come to any of our social media, yeah. or drop by our streams on Twitch, or whatever. If you need the info, we will make sure you get it. We got you. We also want to take a second to thank the Patreon crew and everyone supporting us there. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out Patreon, I don't know what you are doing. Go check it out because <laughs> at this point, there's so much good content on there. Like, yeah, you holy crap. A, if, you, if you're signing up now, you got a backlog now. Yeah, you got some good shit on there. Uh, we have, for as little as $3 a month, we have uh, story time episodes. We've got some other stuff too for other tiers. Behind the scenes videos, merch. All sorts of goodies, so if you check that out, uh, we would really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, go do it, you guys. Do yeah. it right now. Yeah. With that being said, we do want to take a quick second to thank everyone in our Grim VIP Patreon tier. You guys are awesome. A huge thank you to Lisa, Brian, Hillary, Pink Flamingo 20, and RSG. This week we are sharing the behind-the-scenes editing process with Charlotte, so yeah, you guys can check that can out. check that out. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We also have a Facebook if you want to check that out too. And TikTok. We are all yeah. over the place. We grow and we out there. Yeah, all the social media. Yeah. You can also find us on social media. I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V I G on Instagram, and Dina V tweets on Twitter. And I'm ominous underscore walrus on Twitter and Twitch. And I'm ominous walrus on Instagram. Thanks for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. curriculum. Drink your water, guys. Drink your water. Stay hydrated. Lock your doors. Lock your doors. And I feel like we shouldn't have to say this, but uh, don't hitchhike and don't pick up hitchhikers. Yeah, just like, don't do that. Cool.